Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. We hope you enjoy today's message. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Look at Paul's emphatic response. Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me repeat verse 11. So you too, that means everybody in the room, if you are in Christ, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the implications of the gospel. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, God. We thank you that your grace is sufficient. We thank you, God, that you are more than enough. I pray today, God, that after today's message that your people would have a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. And so, Father, let it not just be another sermon. Let it not be something cool that we heard. Uh, Let it not be something that we... Uh, take a little bit of it and treat it like a buffet and throw some of it away. But Lord, let us take all of it. And so, Father, my prayer today is that there will be clarity. I pray that there will be conviction, but I pray also that you would give us the courage to be who you called us to be. And so, Father, I pray that at the end of the day that Christ um, is exalted, that Christ be made known after today, God, that, that we would find our hope in him, God, that we would know that salvation comes in him and in him alone. So, Father, I thank you for your people today. I thank you that we're able to gather and study your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Become Who You Are. Become Who You Are. I believe that a fitting illustration of what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach in this passage plays out in the life of one Miami drug kingpin from the 1980s and 90s. 
recently a docu-series on a streaming channel that shall remain nameless released a documentary titled Cocaine Cowboys. It follows the crazy, wild, adventurous, humorous, but sad life of former Miami drug lords Sal Magluta and Willie Falcone. They were known in the 80s and 90s as Los Muchachos, Los Muchachos, or The Boys. They ran the coke trade in Miami during the 80s and 90s, and they, they were accused of smuggling at least 75 tons of narcotics into the United States and raking in more than, hear this, $2.1 billion during their reign. Not $2.1 million, but $2.1 billion during their reign. But that's not what amazed me, and there were a lot of things to be amazed by in this documentary. But what I found most interesting and captivating throughout the six-episode documentary was the religious convictions of Sal Magluta, the main figure in the documentary. Uh, one character who was so interesting and so eclectic and eccentric was a lady by the name of Marilyn Bonachea. Marilyn Bonachea was Magluta's longtime girlfriend and confidant who throughout the series is referred to as the paymaster of the organization, meaning, meaning she was the person who kept record of those who needed to be paid off in order for the organization not to be exposed and to continue operating. The, the linchpin of the entire operation was the mysterious and priceless ledger that Bonachea kept in her possession that contained the most valuable information about the organization. Bonachea in this ledger was tasked with keeping record of who needed to be paid off and bribed from murder for hire hitmen, jurors, prison guards, police officers, wardens, and politicians. But the interesting thing is Sal Magluta's religious and spiritual beliefs. She said this about the early years when they began dating. Every night, and I quote, every night Sal would call me. We would chat and he would read me the Bible. Sal's main concern always was whether he was going to heaven or not. He said to me one time that if you repent, no matter what bad deeds you do, that you will go to heaven. So I think in his mind, it's like I can do anything I want as long as, as later I repent and feel bad for what I did, and then God will forgive me and I will go to heaven. The theology of a drug lord. Furthermore, to highlight his infatuation with his spiritual life, later in the documentary, after finally being charged and arrested, Magluta wins an impossible trial, which, which only really reveal how far money can actually take you in the legal system if you have enough of it. Outside of the courtroom, after, after a surprising and shocking victory, outside of the courtroom, he stood in front of the South Florida press and declared the goodness of God. He declared that it was God who was on his side as a reason for being acquitted, although there was endless and overwhelming evidence that suggested otherwise. And, I am, and, and as I am sure you can surmise, subsequently, after being acquitted, after his victory, Sal Magluta continued to run his drug enterprise. However, all bad things must come to an end, and it did. It all came crashing down in a paradox fitting of the faith 
of a drug lord. His longtime girlfriend, Marilyn Bonacea, was pulled over doing a routine traffic stop. And guess what the police discovered? The ledger that contained all of the illegal payoffs that had been made for years. This ledger, however, here's the irony. The ledger, however, was in the trunk of the car beneath a mountain of Bible study curriculum that belonged to Sal. Of all the Bible classes he was taking while running his drug operation. And although now in prison after being sentenced to 205 years, the director of the documentary, Billy Corbin, notes that through it all, Magluta has stayed religious. He is very much in touch with his God, the theology of a drug dealer. Now, I cannot say with 100% certainty what brought Sal Magluta to the point of believing that if you would repent and ask God for forgiveness, no matter what you've done, but then still continue the life you always live, that you will go to heaven. I don't know what led him to that belief, but I am convinced that he had a complete erroneous and misunderstood, misunderstood and distorted understanding of salvation by grace alone. It is almost as if he read the text that precedes our text today, Romans 5, 20, where it says, but where sin multiplied Grace multiplied even more. Sal thought, just like many others, if sin brings more grace, then let's just keep on sinning. He completely misunderstands salvation by grace with the scripture, which the scriptures call the gift of grace, which is what Paul taught in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. He taught that unrighteous, undeserving sinners who once stood under the wrath of God have now been made right with God, a right standing before God that is the gift of grace that freely offers forgiveness by God to all who respond in faith. And this gift of grace came from one man, Christ Jesus, and because of Christ, taking on our sin and standing in our place through faith in him he has established a right relationship between God and man and this is called justification get it justification justice a legal standing we are right with God justification we are right with God in right standing although we were guilty somebody else took the penalty of our sin and our punishment justification I said this before just as if I'd never sinned so when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he looks at you, although you are a sinner, he looks at you like just as if you never sinned. And this justification that leads to eternal life empowers us also to live in a new way and to live in a godly way. This justification, which is a free gift of God's grace, doesn't just lead us to more unrighteousness like Sal Magluta might have thought, but it actually leads us to more righteousness instead of unrighteousness. And this is what the Apostle Paul aims to clear up in Romans chapter 6. If anyone had the wrong idea of what grace, or what the grace of God and salvation was all about. The gift of salvation by grace was not and never has been an excuse to live a sinful lifestyle. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to preach the truth to you. The free gift of God leads to something, and more sin is not what it leads to. The only way, I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it in The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, the only man who has a right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Jesus. And so, Romans 5.20 says, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Meaning grace 
super abounded. It, it overflowed. It overwhelmed our sin. And some people took that to mean that in order to get more of God's grace, we need to increase our sin. But that is not what the Apostle Paul was communicating about the grace of God. Sin was multiplied because of the law, which only served to increase our sin because it made us more aware of it. It made our sin all the more. The law actually increased sin. If you don't understand what I'm saying, imagine that you can drive through a neighborhood every day at 90 miles an hour in a residential neighborhood. You ride through it every day and something in you says, I should not be riding through here this fast, but there's nobody to stop me and no one has said anything. But one day as you're driving 90 miles an hour, you see a speed limit sign that says 45. Now when you drive through it, it's not that you kind of can't can complete uh, that you don't know. Matter of fact, the, the law that is now implemented makes you more aware of the sin when you commit it. And that's what the law did to, to, to believers before, uh, what the law did to people before God brought the law forth. It increased the sin. It increased it. It made us more aware of when we do wrong. And he says, where the law increased sin, grace abounded all the more. This is what God did for us. The law increased sin, but grace exceeded immeasurably the extent of human sin where sin brought forth death because the wages of sin is what? Is death. The great grace of God overflowed to us and brought forth a righteousness that actually leads to eternal life. It gave us the desire and the ability to obey God. The grace of God is not limited to forgiveness, but it actually enables us to live righteously. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not just fire insurance but it empowers us to live righteously. And so with that being said, Paul poses a very important question in the text in verse 1. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? How, how should we live then? Can, can we live how we lived before if we bear the name of Christ and we say that we are justified by his grace? Can, can't we get more grace if we keep on sinning more? Isn't that how it works? And Paul says, absolutely not. What a horrible thought. What a, what a horrible idea of, of, of the way to take advantage of God's grace. He says that's a horrible idea. It's absolutely not. Grace was never meant to encourage us to keep on sinning. The grace of God is not a license for us to do whatever we want. This is what Bonhoeffer refers to as cheap grace. And he says that cheap grace is the enemy, is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace is the idea that grace did it all for me so I don't need to change my lifestyle. The believer who accepts the idea of cheap grace thinks he can continue to live like the rest of the world instead of following Christ in a radical way. The Christian lost in cheap grace thinks he can simply enjoy the consolations of God's grace. But Paul is saying we are not who we were before we are now in Christ we are no longer our old selves we are a new creation in him the power of the gospel has caused a radical transformation in us we have a new life and the reason that we have a new life is because we were once uh, who we once were is now dead the person that we once were was marked and known by our sin but that person is now dead how can we who died to sin then still live in it and so when he says, how can we 
who are dead to sin still live in it, let, let me clarify what it means to live in it. It's a habitual practice, a, a lifestyle that is marked by sin, so much so that your life is defined by what you do. Your, your identity is actually wrapped up in your sin. This is not an occasional mistake or an occasional struggle. This is an ongoing conscious decision to offend God on a daily basis, no matter what, and you still say, God will forgive me. Or let me say your favorite line, God knows my heart. And the Spirit is telling me that God don't just know your heart, God's going to know your behind. But if you truly experience the power of the gospel over time, saints, your life will begin to be one of a person that is becoming more like Christ. You will love what he loves, which includes his church. You will desire what he desires. You will get joy from what he takes joy in. It is not to say that the threat of sin won't remain, but it is to say that sin won't reign. And so this is what Paul is getting at in the text. This is an encouragement and a warning to us not to become complacent when dealing with our sin just because God's grace is because God is gracious and he will forgive us. We have immeasurable power to overcome and it is not a secondary source of power that we get from somewhere else to overcome. It is a power that we have that comes directly from God and it is a power that most of us are not fully aware of and have failed to grasp. But let me tell you today, you have power. You have power. Here's what he says in verses 3 through 4, verses 3 through 5, I'm sorry. Are you unaware? Are you unaware of your power source? Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will also we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. When he says, are you unaware? What he's saying is, are you serious? Are you serious? Are you for real? Are you, are you ignorant about what has really happened to you? If you say that you are in Christ, you can't be aware of what happened to you. You can't know what happened to you. If you still think that you can say that you bear the name of Jesus and carry on like nothing ever happened to you. So to live in sin is what he's saying is a flat out denial of the grace and power of God. It robs the gospel of its power. Do you know what happened to you at the moment of salvation? You were, you were saved. You were baptized by the Spirit into Christ Jesus. Verse 3 says, who, we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And Paul here assumes that if you are a follower of Jesus, that, that if you are, are bear the name of Christ, if someone walks up to you and asks you, are you, a, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? And your answer is, yes, he would assume that you've already been water baptized. He would assume that. He would never assume that if you are a Christian that you never experience baptism because when we get baptized, it is a picture of a spiritual reality that has already happened. When we go down in the water, that is symbolic of his burial and his death, but when he comes up out of the water, when a person comes out, it is symbolic of the resurrected life that we now have in Christ Jesus. And so this is encouragement to you as a side note. Get baptized if you have never been baptized before. But other than that, this is to say that what happened to Jesus Jesus has happened to us, that, that we participated in the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We share in that with him. What happened to him happened to us. So when he died, the old us died with him. And when he was raised to life, we were raised to life with him. And so Paul says, therefore, walk in the newness of life. Because what does it mean we bury somebody? 
it marks the end of their old life. So when you got saved, the old you died. There was a funeral that you didn't even know you participated in. But you didn't stay dead because Christ didn't. You've been raised with him. And the life he lives, you now live also. And he says, walk in the newness of life. You see, we don't just identify with his death. We also identify with his resurrection. That's the beauty of it. It's not just the death, but it's the resurrection. He says, walk in the newness of life. That word in the Greek literally, literally means a qualitatively different experience. Walk in the newness, a qualitatively different experience, a more superior experience than you had before, a better life than your old life. This is what it means. I'm not talking about some name and claim it, houses, cars, and money. I'm not talking about that when I say the newness of life or better quality of life. But what I am talking about is forgiveness, eternal security, salvation, forgiveness, peace, grace, love. This is what I'm talking about, a better quality of life. He says, walk in the newness of that life. We have a new sphere of life that we live in. Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. This is what Paul is talking about here. You have an abundant life to live if you are in Christ Jesus. He did not die for you to say the same. So this is not something we see as something, oh my God, I got to live up to something, got to keep some law. No, it's not something to live up to, it's something to live into. This is why we refer to baptism as going, as going public. I, I want people to know that, that who went down in that water is not the same. I, I'm, a, I'm a different person because Christ Jesus has made me new and made me different. We are declaring that we stand in solidarity with Jesus. This is called our union with Christ. Stay with me because when terms come up you never heard before, you get scared. It is called our union with Christ. Look at what he says in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection, united, grown together. It pictures a branch bound together with another branch. They are tied and engrafted together. What does that mean for you and I in Christ? It means that we are in him and he, are, he is in us. We are united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not just united with him in his death. We're united with him in his resurrection. And so when we have a union with Christ, we know that we are in him and he is in us. It brings forth a new identity and that new identity changes everything. Because we no longer identify with the old us, we identify with him. We identify with Christ. And in your union with Christ, Christ displaces you as the center of your universe. He's no longer someone you're tagging on to your story, but now you become a part of his story. And let me tell you, that sounds offensive to, to people who talk to get it up and level up and boss up and all the other ups. <laughs> but let me tell you something. There's so much freedom when you remove yourself as the center of everything. You were not created to be the center. You were created to worship another. And this is what our union with Christ reveals to us. We become part of his story. He makes us new. We put on his identity, not our old identity. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 27. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to read two different versions of Galatians 3, 27, but this is beautiful. Look at what it says in NLT, Galatians 3, verse 27. 
and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. And all of you know you feel so much better when you got on a new outfit. It does something to you when you got on some new threads. You pop them tags in the closet. It's like, woo-hoo, it's on today, Jack. You walk into work with a whole new confidence. You go to the mall. You like strutting. You at a gas station flexing like you're doing all of this stuff. Because you got on a new outfit, it gives you this confidence that you didn't have before. And we now put on, new, put on Christ because we have a new outfit. I love the way Eugene Peterson says it in uh, the Message Bible. Galatians 3.27, the Message Bible says this. Uh, uh, that, 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 is that, yeah, your, your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. Love it. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. Oh, I love this. An adult wardrobe is what he has dressed us in. Do, do you know or have you seen uh, little kids, sometimes, sometimes little girls, you ever see them running around at the mall or the store or something? And little girl, she can be like five or six or seven, and she's dressed in a ball gown and cowboy boots and a baseball hat and a starter jacket, and you're confused. And you're looking at her parent like, what happened? And you're looking at the little girl like, who dressed you? And you don't know if she's going to a dance, to the ranch, to a ball game, or to play in the snow. Because she dressed herself. It's a confusing wardrobe to us. But that's just how some of us dress when we try to put on our old clothes. We are dressed like we're confused and don't know where we're going. But when God dresses us, he puts us in an outfit that matches. He puts us in an outfit that is commiserate with where you are in the faith. And it is better than any name brand that you could ever buy or money could afford because now you are wearing the name that is above every name. You are dressed better than you've ever been dressed in your life so you can hold your head up and walk with confidence and know that your identity is not in the old clothes that you used to wear, but your identity is now in Christ Jesus. And so we are clothed with him. And the old self does not have the power that it used to. Look at verses 6 through 7. I love this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Oh, I love that, that we're no longer slaves. We're no longer enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. This highlights the, the significance of the cross and the crucifixion. Christ's death for sin became our death to sin. Our old self was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And this is why the apostle Paul says he preaches Christ and Christ crucified. That's why I am so perplexed that y'all listen to sermons that are void of Christ in the cross. Newsflash, those aren't sermons. Those are motivational speeches masquerading as sermons. Because if Christ is not central to the sermon, if the cross is not central to the sermon, then it fails to be a sermon. It's just a speech. But Paul says he preaches them, he preaches them crucified because Christ was sinless. He had no need to be free from sin, but he stood in our place and took on our sin, the sin that leads to death. And Christ was victorious over sin. Sin was victorious. He was over victorious over sin. And because he was victorious over it, so are we. And this is the benefit of our union with him. Never forget this. This is our spiritual reality. His victory over it has set us free and it changes everything for us. Paul later says, Galatians, 
Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This means that this body that we have and that we struggle in sin with does not have the power that we think it has. It has been rendered powerless and inoperative. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the cross. Sin has been done away with, completely stripped of its power. When Christ died, we died with him in the death that we died. Severed sins hold on us. It does not have the power that you think it has because of the cross. And you need to hear this. The cro- because of the cross, the cross actually was sin's final move. It exhausted its final move. It practiced all along trying to figure out what its move was. And the cross was sin's final move to get us in eternal damnation. It was its final move. And Jesus got out of the grave. And if Jesus was a, check, a chess player, Jesus would have yelled, checkmate. This is what the resurrection did for us. Game over. Because of the cross, sin has no more moves. It is now power, powerless because of Jesus. When Jesus got out of the grave, we were emancipated from serving sin. But his victory over it secured our victory over it. You need to let that sink in. The resurrection is what makes the gospel good news. It's not good news if he doesn't get out of the grave. We are no longer slaves, brothers and sisters. But we cannot separate the work of Christ for us from the work of Christ in us can't separate the two if his work did something for us it is still doing something in us the grace of God has not just forgiven us it has freed us we have not just been freed from the penalty of sin we have been freed from its power you need to know that today that we've been freed from the power and the penalty of sin freedom in Christ is not a feeling it's a reality It's a reality. It's not a matter of our feelings. The power in the cross and the resurrection supersedes our feelings because his victory over sin and death was final. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Dominion of sin and death has been broken by Jesus. He will never die again. And this is who you and I serve. This is the God that we serve. The God that has defeated our greatest nemesis. No other person has ever done this, but Christ has. Our our God has defeated sin and death, and he is alive. He deserves our worship. Not our singing when I say worship, but our whole lives. If he got out of the grave, it changes everything. It changes everything. And now Jesus lives in unbroken fellowship with God. But that's just not for Jesus. It's for you and I as well. Verse 11. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been infused by the Spirit of God with his power. The power that we desire what he desires and we can obey his word. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He says, consider, ponder, think about it, consider it. 
Make it a thought. Calculate it. Estimate it. Consider. Consider. Consider yourselves. Consider. Think about it. Keep on pondering that, that you died with him and you've been raised to life with him. Think about it every day. Ask the Holy Spirit, God, remind me, convict me, empower me. Let me explore my identity by sitting under the word of God and asking for wisdom and understanding, not to be in a rush when I'm reading the Bible to go do something that my flesh deems more important. Holy Spirit, let me see. Let me grasp this reality every day of my life. Let me uh, uh, explore my new identity by obeying the word of God and trusting him with the outcome. What would, it, what, would it, what would my life look like if today I made a decision to walk away from the old and be who God called me to be? What, what, would, what would my life look like to just obey God one time? What, what would it look like to see my biggest nemesis, my biggest sin, my biggest struggle, and stare dead smack in the face and say, the old me is dead. I have been raised to a new life in Christ. To, to look at your sin and literally say, you're dead to me. What would that be like to no longer choose to live in sin? He says, consider it, ponder it. And I think it's important that he says that. It has been said that the longest journey a man will ever take will be from his head to his heart. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will accelerate the journey for you. That a trip that takes three hours will only take 30 minutes. That's my prayer for you. He says, consider it. Consider that I'm no longer who I used to be. That person is dead, but I am alive. Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. This is who we are. We, we are people who are alive, being made more and more like Christ each and every day. That justification that I talked about at the outset, just as if I'd never seen that position of righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus by faith, that position of righteousness, that justification that we have, that justification flows into something called sanctification where God is working in us, where we're not just positionally righteous, but we can also live righteously. The gospel doesn't just change our position. It changes who we are. Here's what I want to say to you, and I'll level with you. Paul does not deny the reality that even though we have been spiritually set free, that we still live in the world, and we are in daily contact with temptation, with evil, old impulses, habits, tendencies, right at our fingertips or not far away from us. So part of this freedom is actually the already but the not yet. The already, but the not yet. The freedom that we have is complete and final, but not yet complete and final. Let me, let me give you this last illustration on Operation Iraqi Freedom. This invasion happened as a, res, as, a, as a response to the events of September 11, 2001, where the Bush administration introduced the war on terror. Now, whatever you believe about the war on terror, that's your business, but it's going to fit into my sermon today. The United States military launched an attack in Iraq on March 20th of 2003, 
But by May, on May 1st of 2003, President Bush stood on the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln and announced to the world, mission accomplished, the war is over. Bush declared the end of major combat operations in Iraq because of the defeat of Iraqi forces. Nevertheless, while he declared a mission accomplished and that the victory was already won, Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, remained at large and significant pockets of resistance remained. And although the war was already over, Saddam's hometown of Tikrit, the last major stronghold, fell with little resistance later on and Saddam Hussein although the war was over in May he wasn't captured until December 13 so although the war was over there was still strongholds and still battles taking place and what I'm saying to you is that although the war is over and the victory has been won and it has been secured what we see every day is not a war it's just a battle it is just strongholds that are battling trying to convince us that we don't have the victory but we do have the victory and just like Saddam Hussein was captured later and executed the same thing is going to happen to Satan and his kingdom when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead it will be over it will be a wrap and we will have to deal with struggle with sin no more because victory is ours this is what is happening and so lastly and I'm done what are the practical implications of all of this verses 12 through 14 therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is no longer the authority in your life. It is not sovereign over you. Because of Jesus, there is a new sheriff in town. You are under new management. You don't work for the kingdom of darkness anymore. You will no longer use your body as weapons of mass destruction. But instead, you will use them as weapons of righteousness to serve God. And this is what he's saying. Because the gospel has implications. There's a scripture in 1 Peter that says, Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. And what he's saying is, hey, offer your body, all of you, as weapons of righteousness. Here, God, take all of me, my mind, my body, my hands, my feet, my limbs, my mouth, my tongue. Every part of me belongs to you. We are no longer under the curse of the law. We are under God's grace. What does that mean? I think Paul explains it best when we look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. When it comes to the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 1 Peter 2, 24 sums it up. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live. For righteousness. It's not that the law is no longer relevant. 
It is. It reveals to us the character of God, but also serves as a mirror to us about his holiness and our unrighteousness. And when we look at the law of God like a mirror, we look at the law of God and realize how far off we are, and there's nothing we can do to change it. It causes us to run to the throne of grace, to obtain mercy, to obtain forgiveness. So every time you see God's commands and you say, oh my God, I can't do this, that should be a reminder to you to run to the cross, to seek refuge in him. God knows that you are weak. God knows that you are not strong. But greater is he that is in you than he that's out there in the world. You have power in Christ Jesus. We just need to be reminded of it. All of us at times have had a little salmagluta in us. Pastor, I didn't sell no drugs. You might not have sold drugs, but you've used something that has intoxicated you. Because the wages of sin is death. Whether you sow 75 tons of smack, to use a 70s term, or you left something out on your taxes, Feel a PPP up in my spirit up in here, man. <laughs> the wages of that sin, no matter how small it is, is death. So we can therefore not continue to live in sin and have a theology that because God forgives, we just keep on sinning. That is an indication that you have never been saved in the first place. Because a life that is characterized by sin and living in sin is not a life that is characterized by someone who has been saved by the gospel. So let's walk in the freedom that Christ has afforded us. You know what the crazy thing is about this story? is that when he got off trial, he could have walked free. He had enough money to go wherever he wanted to. He could have went and sat down somewhere. But when you've never been truly redeemed, that don't make sense to you. So that tells me that he never, never, was saved to begin with. Because if he was, there was no way that he could have literally been free and walked back into bondage on purpose. And how many of us walk back into bondage on purpose every day? But who the Son sets free is free indeed. When sin calls you, you can hit the ignore button. 
you can mute it. You can delete it. You can block it. You can do whatever you do with it. You don't have to answer to it. You are now a new slave. But you are a slave to Christ. And being a slave to him leads to eternal life with God. Become who you are. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.